Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Lori Baird. Uh, she just goes, ah, 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 and she sprays the whole night. <laughs> I mean, it was like Watts in the 60s. That and more from our latest live show at the Pit in New York City. But first, a few words. Listen, if you haven't heard yet, postage rates are changing again. And you know what that means. It means the post office is going to be even more crowded now. That's why we use Stamps.com. You can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Stamps.com always updates the postage rates for you automatically. And unlike those postage meter companies, Stamps.com never charges a fee to do that. So with Stamps.com, you get the exact postage you need for any letter or package when you need it. You never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com and we love it. Right now, we have a special offer for you when you use our promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. so much for coming out on this crazy cold night oh my gosh and a lot of the trains aren't running it's terrible but we're here god damn it we are here we have actually a super super fun show tonight how many people are familiar with risk the podcast awesome i love that there's always people who raise their hand so polite if you don't know, Risk is the show where people tell true stories that they never thought they'd dare to share in public. So we feature a lot of stories that, you know, you'd never hear on NPR or places like that. We really kind of encourage people to step outside their comfort zones, whether or not it's in an emotional way or an X-rated way or whatever it may be. We say nothing is inappropriate until something is. And tonight's theme is fascination. The things that obsess us and preoccupy us. For me, this week, I have been very fascinated by something, and that is sex. <laughs> if you are familiar with the podcast, you already know that. There is a story that I've told on the podcast fairly recently about how when I was 22 years old, I thought to myself, maybe I can take this fascination I have with sex and make money from it, also known as prostitution. That story, if you've heard it, is a bit of a comedy of errors. I wasn't very good at it. Uh, it didn't really work out. I didn't have the mojo. But since Risk has come out, there have been episodes like Kevin Goes to Kink Camp, and that kink camp was so impressed that I told my story about how I became a kinkster on the show, so they made me a faculty member. <laughs> and now on the podcast and on, you know, like Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that, I'm always doing these updates about, you know, my little tips about how to spank someone or whatever it may be. And so I got a message from a person on FetLife this week. If you don't know, FetLife is like Facebook for kinksters. And this message was an older gentleman. About He said he was 65 years old. He said, um, I've heard some of your stories. You know, you can text message back, just like on Facebook. And I said, oh, <laughs> thank you very much. He said, yes, you seem like you're quite the expert on things like spanking. And I thought that that was kind of funny because if there's one thing that all my stories have in common, if there's a theme that runs through them all, it's that I'm an imbecile. 
So it made me wonder if he'd actually heard any of the stories. But I said, oh, thank you so much. He said, I would like to perhaps make an arrangement with you. I said, an arrangement? He said, yes, I'm very familiar with the fact that you have a thing for young Asian guys. I said, yeah. He said, well, I am an old white man. I said, yeah. He said, well, I am so impressed with you that I thought maybe you could do some spanking of me for $350 an hour. He said, maybe I could come to your apartment once or twice a week and you could spank me and I'd pay you for it. And I thought to myself, this is a different position I'm in than when I was 22. And uh, I don't know where this story's going, but Tuesday... (laughs) ...will be the next chapter of this one. So I'll let you all know. Anyway, we have a lovely and wonderful show today. One of the things I'm thrilled about today is that so many people on the lineup today are people that I have really, like, have mentored me over the years in the storytelling scene here. A lot of people who have done a lot of work at this theater and the other theaters around town. So it's a real thrill to have such a solid lineup of wonderful people. First person I'd like to bring up to the stage, he is the associate editor of Story Magazine, which is relaunching soon, Classic Magazine. And he teaches at Gotham Writers. Please welcome to the stage, Ryan Brick. If I'd been uh, Kevin in that situation, I probably just would have said House 400 Sound instead. (laughs) So when I was uh, in sixth grade, around 10 years old, which is how old you are in sixth grade, I had to Google that to remember (laughs) exactly, I became a porn debunker. The Supreme Court is the place where adults go to find out what pornography is, where do children in sixth grade go? To me. (laughs) Ryan, they'd say, there are playboys in the library. There are penthouses in the library. There are hustlers in the library. And I'd say, those aren't playboys. Those aren't penthouse. Those aren't hustler. I know what those are. Those are called National Geographic. (laughs) But they're naked, they would say. They are completely nude. Cocks, too. Completely naked. Well, my friends, nudity does not equal a playboy. It does not equal a penthouse. It does not equal a hustler. How was I such a great porn debunker? Well, there was plenty of those periodicals in my house growing up. My father had a subscription to Playboy, he had a subscription to Penthouse, and there was an occasional purchased hustler for that special occasion. (laughs) I didn't think, however, that Playboy, Penthouse, and Hustler were pornography, necessarily. I just knew that they weren't National Geographic. I knew there was a difference. My father wasn't ashamed at all of Playboy, Penthouse, or Hustler. He declared loudly as a quasi-libertarian Republican with no God that there was nothing wrong with the human body and no one should be ashamed of it, particularly not me. When I was 15 years old, before I was thinking aloud, he purchased me my own Playboy, Penthouse, and Hustler. My father believed there was nothing wrong with having these things around the house at all. And what did I care? I wasn't masturbating to that stuff anyway. I had a crush. I had a crush on a girl who was my age. Now, talking about having crushes on 10 or 11-year-old girls is creepy, but I was also 10 or 11 years old, so it's okay. For the purposes of the story, we'll call her the Red Violin because code names are fun. (laughs) Why was she called the Red Violin? Well, perhaps she played the violin, and maybe she looked a little bit like Anna Paquin. I don't know. 
But I also knew that the red violin knew nothing of me, knew nothing of my existence, because in the possible orchestra where she possibly played the violin, I played the trombone, and she had no idea that I existed. So thinking of the red violin were things that I perhaps masturbated to. What did my father care what I was masturbating to? There were plenty of playboys and penthouses around the house. And there were also dildos. There were also dildos in my house. Now, I've checked out some child psychology in preparation for this story, and I've discovered that most children know what a word means before they start saying a word. I think dildo is probably the exception here. <laughs> I think we probably say the word dildo a lot when we're 10 years old before we know what dildo means. I think I probably said Bradley Thompson is a huge dildo before I had any idea of how to use a dildo. You wouldn't use a dildo without knowing what a dildo was, but you can say dildo all you want. Why did my father have dildos? Well, my father took pictures. Not those kinds of pictures. My father took pictures of stuff. The George Carlin stuff that we talk about. He took pictures of people's handmade jewelry boxes. He took pictures of fiber optic cables. He took pictures of strange water bottles that were portable that people had invented. And he took these pictures because nobody else had a camera or on their phone or on their computer in those days which meant they had to have someone take a professional picture of it in order to put it in a catalog. Yes, my father was a commercial photographer. He took pictures of dumb objects in the house, including once, furtively, dildos. <laughs> I saw the dildos lined up on the gray paper with the professional photographic lighting, and I thought they looked like toys. I thought they looked like toys of monsters, like adversaries of Godzilla or Mothra. And I said, what are those? And he said, if you tell your mother that I'm taking pictures of these, we will never speak again. I kept my mouth shut, mostly because I wanted a Godzilla adversary of my own someday. I also learned about secrets and how certain things that are shameful or secret are fascinating to people. These are the things that are true pornography. It didn't help that at the time, in addition to fantasizing about the red violin, I was also taking a look at one of my father's photography manuals called Nude Photography the French Way. <laughs> Americans are fantastic at figuring out how if something is European, it makes it okay and not pornography. Nude photography the French way was a lot hotter than the playboys in the penthouses we had lying around the house. I don't know if it shaped me in any way particularly, but let's just say the women in nude photography the French way looked real. And I felt like I was getting away with something when I masturbated to nude photography the French way. Meanwhile, my mom was doing what else but sponsoring the school's spirit line? If anybody knows what that is, think about Little Miss Sunshine when she dances inappropriately to songs. Does anybody remember Culture Beat's great hit, Mr. Vane? They call me Mr. Raider. They call me Mr. Vane. I'm the only one. Now I know how old anyone in the audience is. Fantastic. I am older than you. These were inappropriate dances with 11, 10-year-old girls in skirts, shaking it like nobody's business. My mother was the sponsor and choreographed the dances. <laughs> but who would take the pictures to document such a thing? <laughs> who would be the one to actually take the pictures? My father had a dark room in our home, in the garage, and from time to time he would ask to help, have me help him develop some of the pictures in the dark room. Anybody knows anything about photographic paper, they know that it's exposed to light, it will be ruined, you can't use it. There was a box in my father's dark room that was labeled photographic paper, do not open. How did I know that was a lie? How did I know there wasn't photographic paper in that box labeled photographic paper, 
do not open. Well, I knew it somehow. Some kind of genetic perversity that I shared with my father <laughs> let me on to the fact that if I opened up the box that said photographic paper do not open, there would be something other than photographic paper in it. And I was 100% correct. Because it wasn't Playboy, it wasn't Penthouse, it wasn't Hustler, but it was hardcore bondage. Hardcore bondage magazines featuring all sorts of monstrous adversaries of Godzilla <laughs> being strapped to various humans and shoved in other humans' faces and other orifices. I might not have known what dildo meant, but I saw more of what they were used for, along with all sorts of other pain-inducing devices. Now, wait a minute, Ryan, you're saying, who cares about bondage? That's not all that fascinating. That's not all that interesting. I was 10. I had nude photography the French way in Playboy. This was whips and chains monthly. I was always disappointed they couldn't manage to pull that off weekly, but that's me. The point is, is this is something that my dad hid. He hid it for some reason. Luckily, I talked to Kevin a little bit about my story beforehand, and he informed me a little bit about how much you charge for spankings and things like that. <laughs> but also the idea that keeping something a secret is part of what makes it kinky, part of what makes people fascinated by it sexually. If the BDSM community wanted to have a pride parade, it would ruin the idea of BDSM. If we can't keep it a secret, how is it hot anymore? If my father can't hide bondage magazines inside of a box labeled photographic paper, do not open, how are those hot anymore? The Playboys, the penthouses, and the hustlers were a smokescreen. They were a smokescreen for Godzilla's monsters ramming into other people while being tied to walls. <laughs> what did all this mean for me? Well, my father was not only someone with some secrets, but a desire to take pictures of 10 or 11-year-old girls in their skirts in the spirit line for free. Because someone had to do it. Someone had to offer the parents the experience of documenting this event. Was the red violin on the spirit line? You bet. <laughs> she was the star performer. How did my father know I had a crush on the red violin? He was my father. Of course he knew. And so, at some point after documenting the insane dance routines my mother choreographed for 10 and 11 year old girls in skirts they should not have been wearing, <laughs> my father developed the photographs for all the proud parents. Developed all the photographs for all 18, 19, 20 something girls who are all 10 or 11 year old, old apiece. But he made sure to make an extra set for me. In a manila envelope, sealed, slid underneath my door one night <laughs> were pictures of the red violin in action, dancing like no 11-year-old's business. My own kind of bespoke, customized pornography. And you can only imagine what I did with it. Thank you. came up when Ryan and I were discussing his story. One, I had no idea what the word bespoke means. <laughs> Didn't know that vocabulary word. Uh, and another thing was we were talking about that whole, well, see, there was once an incident where a young man that I was very interested in said to me, Ugh, you're such a pervert. And my penis went, Bruh? <laughs> I realized that day that uh, the word pervert, being called that in a dismissive way, turns me on. Um, and uh, recently there have been some people in the kink community who are pushing for a big BDSM pride parade like the gay community has. And their argument is, that way we can say to the world, see, we're not just a bunch of perverts. And my reaction is, no, don't ruin it for me. Uh, our next storyteller is kind of a 
a hero of mine. He really welcomed me into the whole storytelling scene when I was just dipping my toes in the water. Super wonderful guy, super great storyteller. He's won the moth 18 times. <laughs> it's, all, it's almost embarrassing for him now, I think. <laughs> you can find him at adamwade.com. Please welcome Adam Wade. I grew up in New Hampshire, and um, like the first like 16 years of my life were, were pretty normal, like a normal kid. And then I, I went to uh, to get my license, and uh, I had to take like an eye test, and, and I had to get glasses. And that's when everything changed for me. That's when uh, like everybody started saying I look like Rick Moranis. Uh, <laughs> Now, Rick Moranis, uh, for a 16-year-old kid, I mean, it's not Brad Pitt. If you don't know who he is, he's kind of like a, he's got chubby cheeks, and he's in, like, the movie's Little Giant, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, from Ghostbusters. Uh, it's, it's not Jude Law. So, so when they're going on and on, and they're making fun of you, and saying you look like him, uh, and, like, kids in high school, when they start doing that, uh, if they know it's your weakness, they just they don't let up. And a after a while, like you could think you're the, the, the toughest guy going, which I did, uh, but you, you develop like a complex. So my, my, my freshman year in college, I went to a small school, uh, Keens Day College in, in, in New Hampshire. It's like an, an hour from my, my, my house. Uh, first semester, I was in a girl's dorm room. <laughs> she, she, she was there too. <laughs> and like things were going well, things were going well, and and and, and I was really happy. And then she said, you know, I, I gotta ask you something. I go, well, whatever. What, what, what do you want? Please tell me. And she's like, I, I gotta, you know, did anyone ever tell you, you know, you look like Rick Moranis? <laughs> And it, like, like I don't know, like the tone of the question, like I, I still to this day don't know if she was making fun of me or, or, or complimenting me, uh, but through my insecurities, I, I just ran out, I left. And like, and then the next morning, I was eating at the dining hall with like a bunch of my friends, and they're like, how did it go? Wendy, she liked you, you know, what, what happened? I'm like, no, no, it, it didn't go so well. And they're like, what happened, dude, she liked you? And I'm like, why do you keep saying she liked me? She said I look like Rick Moranis. They're like, dude, who cares? I go, I do, I left. They're like, what? I go, they go, you're nuts. And I was like, maybe. <laughs> so when I graduated from college, I, uh, I went to, I moved to New York and I became an NBC page. Uh, so uh, when you're a page at NBC here, uh, you give tours like around 30 Rock, like, like six days a week, six times a day. And for me, like every... Every fucking tour I did, <laughs> like I'd have some tourist say, you know who you look like, and, you know, Rick Moranis, huh? and back and forth. And, like, I'm a nice guy, trying to be a nice person and stuff like that, but, but I mean, I, I got my limits too, uh, so there was, I was like, I, I get cranky, and, and uh, one day uh, I was on like the fourth tour of the day, and, and we were coming out of Dateline, and we are showing the, it was like the Dateline Studios, and, and we're, we're showing... Uh, the, the, the tour people into the elevator and a woman came up to me and she's like, you know, I, I, do, do you know, and she had like a Green Bay Packers jacket on, she was a big woman, and she goes, I, do, do you know who you look like? And I just looked at her, I go, yeah, Brad Pitt, I'll get your fat ass on the fucking elevator. <laughs> when you work for guest relations and, 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 and the national broadcast company, like you're not, you're not supposed to talk to, 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 to the tourists like that. So five years ago, I, I had the lowest point in my, my time in New York. I, I, at the time, I was living in a basement apartment in, in Hoboken, New Jersey. So every time you look out the window, you, you see feet and dogs shitting. Um, I hadn't dated a girl in, 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 in 23 months. But, but, but who's counting? And... Uh, <laughs> 
For me, like, there was, like, local bars. Like, I, I go to this local bar, and there's a guy called Malibu Nick. He looked like a Malibu Ken doll. And, like, all these women around Hoboken would go in there, and they'd look. And they and they just, like, in awe of this guy, like, how great he was. And, and, and I couldn't help but be jealous. Like, he would say stupid things that didn't make any sense, but they would just laugh, and they would just gaze. And he probably screwed half a Hoboken. And, like... I didn't so much want to look like him and, and, and be like him. I just wanted women to look at me like they looked at him. So at that time, I was working as a temp at, in Midtown for this French company. And I don't speak French, so it was difficult. I was like my own island. And um, <laughs> like, I was very depressed. And like a big night out for me is I leave work like on a Thursday or Friday night. And I would go into like a nice... Uh, like hotel, like a very ritzy hotel in, in Midtown, and I would just sit there and read my graphic novels. And one night there was like a party going on in the function hall, and, and, I, and I just strolled over and I started talking to the bartender there, and I ordered a drink, and there was like a pharmaceutical convention, and there was like a lot of women there, like a few men, and uh, just like looking around, and, and I, uh, I, got, I ordered a, a, a Miller Lite, and I went to give him five dollars, and he's like, "Oh no, no, you're you're with you're you're with them, so you're all set." Because so, uh, evidently, I also look like a pharmaceutical salesman. Uh, so I said, "Oh, hang on for the Miller. Get, get me a Heineken Light, you know, because it was like a dollar more." So so I, and, and give me a shot, and then I started ordering drinks. I'm a lightweight, but I was feeling buzzed, and I'm like looking around the room, like I got buzz, and I see this woman. She's like a plus size girl, like like Monica Lewinsky esque, and like I like Monica Lewinsky a lot, and like we 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 walk eyes. She comes over, and we start talking, and it's going well, and, and and it's going really well. And she's drinking, and she's like, she's from like rural Illinois, and she's here in the big city, and she loves New, and we're going back and forth and, and then she's and like it's just fun and, and it's nice and there's like a connection and I, I know I know when there's not and I know when there's one and then she says like you know did anyone ever tell you you look like Rick Moranis I took a step back and I looked at her and I just said well you know I should he's my dad <laughs> and her face like lit up and like she was into me like 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 a five or six into me now it was like a full blown like ten. She was like into me. She's asking me questions, and I'm like, shit. Like I, I'm like, I'm not a guy that like goes around lying to people. But but then again, it was like like she's digging. It, like give me a break, all right? So I, so I was playing along with it. So we're going on, and we're going on, and it's fun, and this is like nice. So so I walk her back to her, her hotel after after the convention, and it's like two blocks away, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm pretty loaded, and I go to kiss her, and I just close my eyes, and I lean in, and I miss her. Like I I, I get like her, her ear, and like. And she's like, you're such a dork. You, you are Rick Moranis' son. I was like, yeah, yeah. And she's like, you know, this is like one of the best nights I've ever had. She's like, no, no, well, well like, uh, you know, you want to do something tomorrow night? And I was like, yeah, 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 you're here. She's like, yeah, yeah. But I go, you know, I'd love to take you for grilled cheese sandwiches. There's a nice little diner, you know, girls will go out. She's like, no, I want to go there. And she points to it's Del Frisco Steakhouse. And I was like, Jesus Christ, that's expensive. She's like, no, I want to go there. I'm like, oh, all right, well, well, you got to understand, like, I, I, I'm Rick Moranis' son, but I'm like the black sheep. You know what I mean? I don't have like, a lot of money here for, for, for steaks. And she's like, oh, no, we'll use my corporate card. And I was like, Oh yeah, we'll go there. I'll take you there. You're a nice girl. We're gonna we're gonna go for steaks a la carte, you know. So the next night we go and I dress up. I wear a nice polo shirt and, and, and my jeans and my sneakers and I'm dressed up and we're good. And we go and we order and we're, we're having a good time. We're getting steaks and and then like the the, the waiter asks is like you know I go I'd like to have a salad with French dressing and, and, and he's like well, what's that like I, I don't you know this is a fan of French. I go you know listen garçon okay you go into the kitchen. You get some ketchup, you get some mayonnaise, whip it up, then you get, uh, you know, French dressing. And he, like, he left, and, and then I looked at her, and she was very impressed. She was very, she was like, you are very worldly to know about French dressing and what the ingredients are. So I walk her back to her her hotel again and this is like a lot and I go again like this is the second and this is like unbelievable and I give her a kiss and I go this is the best night she's like listen like the night doesn't have to end why don't you come up would you like to come up I like that so, so we go up and, and, and it goes well and it's very difficult to tell you how well it went <laughs> Like I'm afraid I'm gonna jinx myself. 
But it went well. We, we had a good time. Twice. And it went well. It was a record for me to get it twice. It was good for me. And uh, it was so, after the second time we, we did it, I'm holding her in my arms and she's sleeping. I'm having like this panic attack. I'm like, who the? Who are you? Like, you're lying about this stuff. And then, like, the other side of me, like, come on, Jesus Christ. I mean, I haven't touched a girl. And so I'm, like, going back and forth. So in the morning, we wake up, and we play the game I like to always play. Like, I, I give her a piece of clothing. She gives me a piece of clothing. That's the game I play. And uh, <laughs> so she gets her bag, and we start going downstairs. And she gets tells me, she's like, is everything all right? I'm like, she's like, is everything all right? I go, yeah. So I'm flagging down a cab, and the cab comes over, and I'm like, listen, like, I got to tell you something. She's like, what? I'm like, I'm not really Rick Moranis' son. And she says, uh, I kind of figured that out a while ago. <laughs> but I kind of appreciate you role-playing in this, this like, fantasy I've always had. <laughs> She had a, 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 a Rick Moranis fetish. Um, so she kisses me on the cheek, and I'm just kind of stunned, and she gets in the cab. And she just drives away, and I watch her drive away. In my life, like Rick Moranis has denied me happiness like so many, so many times in my life. Fucker got me laid. Twice. Thank you. Adam Lane, everyone. All right, put that in your role playing toolkit. <laughs> for some people or maybe one <laughs> awesome no I always thought that Rick Moranis was cute I love you know anyway um, alright our next storyteller is one of my favorite storytellers in town he has been involved in so many phenomenal shows his next show it's variety show and a burlesque show it's called Nefarious Laboratories it's under St. Mark's on the 5th of February please welcome to the stage Mr. Brad Lawrence when I was 15, something miraculous happened. And that was that Showtime Movie Channel ran a summer subscription special. That meant that from June 1st through August 31st, you could get Showtime Movie Channel for half off the regular subscription rate. You could cancel... September 1st, no questions asked, and you could bet your bottom dollar my stuff I was going to cancel. September 1st, no questions asked. But in the meantime, for the duration of the summer, we had a subscription to one of the most coveted things in the year of our Lord, 1988, a pay cable movie channel. And if you were to look at a TV guide from 1988 and look at what Showtime had to offer, you would say to yourself, does anyone really need to see the race-based comedy Soul Man featuring the comic stylings of C. Thomas Howell that many times? The answer is no, not even once. But the mistake you'd be making was you'd be looking at the primetime lineup. And this was not what had my attention. What had my attention was Showtime After Hours. It was Showtime After Hours that had me... A very overweight, like thick Coke bottle glasses, um, a mullet, braces, not the picture of grace. This is what had me at the age of 15 sneaking out of my room in the middle of the night, silent like a ninja. <laughs> Make my way down the hall and then down the stairs, putting each foot close to the wall of the steps of the step wooden creek. Getting down to the basement, making my way silently across the basement to the TV, hitting the power button and then the mute button immediately, but then waiting... It was an old tube TV that made that, that ozone sound, and so you had to wait and make sure the ozone sound hadn't woken anybody up upstairs. And then when I was sure that no one was up upstairs, 
Then, and only then, was I free to enjoy showtime <laughs> after hours. <laughs> and showtime after hours mainly consisted of European films named after women. There was Emmanuel and Vanessa and Fanny Hill and Felicity. Felicity was my favorite. I could not get enough Felicity because Felicity Felicity was was shot in like golden hour, like like everything was golden and beautiful. And it was it starred this very uh small like pretty girl who just like this woman who would, she would enter every scene and immediately take up all of her clothes. And then she would sort of like give this little hop on her heels and her chin would jut forward and her nipples would sort of point at whoever she was sharing the scene with as if to say, yes, I mean you. <laughs> and I just could not get enough of this film. Like every time I saw it, I would watch out for it. And when I saw it, I was just amazed by her, like her nudity, for one thing, and also by like the confidence she had in her nudity. Like she just take up her clothes and there she was. And like I was a huge fat kid and I was embarrassed to take off like my clothes in my own bathroom. You know, like for a shower, like like, and just like the 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 sheer um, arrogance of like of like her 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 just nakedness was also amazing to me. I was fascinated. Just could not just ooh, it was fantastic. Um, and it wasn't like it wasn't like I hadn't seen porn before. Like my stepbrother had shown me porn, but the porn that Jeff had shown me was kind of like shot in a Mexican hotel room at like three o'clock in the afternoon. That this woman sort of like spread like, like giving you like an excellent view of her internal organs like like <laughs> Jeff's porn kind of like grabbed you by the lapels and screamed in your face vagina and I was not ready for that like it was a little bit too much for me at this point but but these my new European friends they kind of were they sort of took, took me by the hand and said don't worry we'll go slow this will be fun and it was fun so much fun. But for as much as I loved my new European friends, it was actually an American film that had the most lasting impact on my life because it was the movie Two Moon Junction that led to my bout of teenage anorexia as a corrective measure. And how this happened was that, well, there's two things you need to know about Two Moon Junction. First of all, the female lead was Sherilyn Fenn, and she was beautiful and naked all the time. Beautiful and naked all the time. And then the male lead was hideous. Just this horrible, grotesque monstrosity of a human being that got to touch Sherilyn Fenn in the craziest places. And this is where we come to a giant misconception on my part because this guy was... He was a monument to, like, the chiseled jawline and the perfect set of abs. He was gorgeous, but to me... He was hideous. And the reason he was hideous to me is I'd seen him in one film before, and that was in Three O'Clock High, where he had played the bully, Buddy Ravel. And they had kind of thugged him up for the part, you know, kind of roughed him up a bit. But then beyond that, I was a bullied kid. And so to me, just by virtue of the fact that he was playing a bully, I just sort of perceived him as this gargoyle creature. You know, he was just this monster out of nightmares for me. And so I'm watching this thing, and here's this hideous, um, you know, beast of a human being who's getting to touch Sherilyn Fenn in all these crazy places. But when he takes off his shirt, one thing is, is painfully obvious, and that's that this guy is in fantastic shape. And so I'm watching this, and my thinking is, all right, they've cast this guy opposite Sherilyn Fenn because apparently they believe that a person this hideous would get to touch Sherilyn Fenn in real life. Like, people will believe that. So therefore, this is the faultiest fucking math in the world. Therefore, apparently, women don't care what you look like. All they care about is that you're in shape, i.e. not fat. Right? Yeah. So I had no idea what I would look like if I lost the weight, you know, because I'd still have, like, the braces and the glasses and the mullet, which I did not realize was optional. (laughs) 
But if it meant that I got to touch a woman like Sherilyn Fenn in all kinds of crazy places, I was going to find out. So commence starvation. My summer of starvation worked like this. I would wake up in the morning. I would leave the house immediately before anyone else got up. I would leave without breakfast, go down to, there was a, a, a line of woods in a creek that ran through our subdivision. I would go down there and I would sort of walk around all day long down there. And I could get anywhere I wanted to go in my neighborhood through the creek and through the woods. And I would go to the mall and read comic books, or I'd go to the library and read comic books. Um, and I could do all of this, and it would take up like most of the day, and then I'd come home in the afternoon, I'd eat my one meal for the day. My one meal for the day was a single-serving microwave pizza. And then after that, I would go downstairs, and someone in my family had bought a rusty, rickety uh, weight set at a garage sale that no one used up until this moment. And I would work out on that until I couldn't anymore, and then I would go out, I would watch Soul Man. Um, and then I'd pretend to go to bed until about two or three in the morning when I would get up and sneak out to rejoin my European friends and Two Moon Junction. And as the summer went on, walking became running, and starving became will. And soon, by the time uh, September 1st rolled around, my stepfather canceled showtime and I lost my new European friends and Sherilyn Fenn forever or until the internet. <laughs> I had gone from 245 pounds to 180. I had lost 65 pounds using a method that would kill anyone who is not 16 years old. <laughs> or Matthew McConaughey apparently. <laughs> And, I, and I, now it's time for school to begin again. And I, I come into the kitchen where my mom is, she's filling out paperwork, she worked from home, and she's filling out paperwork at the kitchen table. And I walk in and she looks up and she kind of looks at me. This look passes over her face like something has happened here and maybe she should have had tabs on this. Because I'm wearing my, like the clothes I've had, you know, um, up until this point, which are sagging on me now and I'm kind of cinching them up and and they're just sort of hanging off me like I'm a scarecrow. And she sees me there, and like, it was easy for her to miss this. I am the youngest of eight. Um, Jeff, the one that had shown me the porn, he had also, the, not too long after that, um, had run afoul of a drug dealer who uh, was now calling our house at demanding $10,000 and a gun that apparently Jeff had also had which we did not have $10,000 or his gun, and we had been waiting for a drive-by shooting or like some kind of violent break-in in the middle of the night. Um, and the police were like, well, if that happens, give us a call. It's... <laughs> so, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of things going on in my family. It was easy to miss the fact that I was like starving myself in the basement watching porn. <laughs> but now here I am in the kitchen, and, it, and it's impossible to miss now. And like, there I am. And my mom sees me, I don't know what went through her mind at this point. What I think went through her mind was something to the effect of, you know what? I don't know what this is, but she knew how hard school had been for me, how tough it had been, the teasing and the bullying and all that kind of thing. And I think she just kind of thought to herself, whatever this is, if this will make this coming school year any easier on my youngest and strangest child... <laughs> then maybe this once we can not look at gift horse in the mouth. Maybe we can just count this one blessing and see where it goes. So in the most even, non-judgmental tone, she says to me, well, Brad, it looks like you are going to need new clothes for school. And so she takes me shopping. We buy me new clothes for school. And I started up that next year, and uh, it did get better. Things were better. Um, the teasing kind of stopped, and the bullying stopped. And then, shortly into the new year, I, I turned 16, and then I met a girl named Susan. And I touched her in the craziest places. <laughs> Thank you.
Okay, folks, we have just one more storyteller for tonight. But before I bring her out here, let me just remind you that uh, you can always find us also at thestorystudio.org. We do workshops that last two days. We do workshops that last six weeks. We do one-on-one stuff over Skype. All sorts of options uh, for learning how to do storytelling for business or for the stage or whatever. Dating, we're going to be doing that soon. Storytelling for dating. So uh, check us out at thestorystudio.org. I'd like to bring up our final storyteller. She is a friend of mine. She has a wonderful show that I did just the other night. A lot of people take our classes at the Story Studio and they wonder, is there a place that's safe to try out new stories? And there are some good open mics in the city where you can put your name in a hat and try out a story. And Lori runs one of these. It's called Talk Therapy Stories. There are prepared stories and stories pulled out of the hat. So it's a really great mix of an evening. The other night was just, I was blown away. It's on the first and third Monday of every month, and it's at um, Three of Cups. So please welcome to the stage, Laurie Baird. When my marriage ended uh, about six, no, you know what? I'm going to start again. When I ended my marriage uh, about six years ago now, I was a roiling mass of sexual frustration. True, my decade-long marriage was sexless for the last seven years of it, but my uh, weapons-grade horniness had been building for a lot longer than that. Um, I had kind of a shitty and violent and bad childhood, and uh, it, it left me feeling really just terrified of men and terrified of intimacy, and uh, so much so that I didn't go on a date until I was in my early 30s. When I did go on that date, I held on to that guy like grim death, and uh, we got married. I wasn't a virgin when I got married, but I may as well have been. I didn't get a chance to fly my freak flag during my marriage, so I found myself at 44 alone again, and in my new little apartment, thinking about sex all of the time. And I mean every minute of every day. I was possessed, I was obsessed, I was perpetually horny. I felt like a 16-year-old boy feels all the time. Um, But the thing is, I didn't kind of know what to do with that. All I knew is that I wanted to have sex with a person and I didn't know how to go about finding someone. I didn't, you know, did they have glory holes for women? I don't know. And I didn't know what a glory hole was back then. And so I did what you do. I, I got online, I got on my laptop, and I, I didn't even surf porn. I was afraid to surf porn because I thought someone was going to burst into my apartment and catch me surfing porn. So I ended up reading a lot of erotica. Take it from me, there's a lot of shitty, poorly written erotica on the internet, and as a writer, I'm offended by this. Um, Luckily, I happened upon a blog one day, uh, a blog written by a guy around my age. Um, He lived in Manhattan, and he was just out of a, a pretty sexless marriage, too, and it was there that the similarities between us ended. He, uh was a bisexual fellow, and he hosted orgies and gangbangs and circle jerks and bukkake parties at his apartment. He had lots of boyfriends and girlfriends, but what really caught me was how nicely written this blog was. Uh, I I really admired his writing. It was masterful, and so uh, I read this blog fairly frequently, you know, for like a week and a half, and Another thing struck me, two things struck me. He, he talked about how people would contact him via his blog to have sex with him. The other thing he said in his blog was that, well, he called himself the easiest lay in Manhattan. And so um, I had a bold plan. I decided that, you know what, I'm just going to drop him a line and let him know how much I like his blog. And three days later, I was at his apartment having sex with him. And... Um, <laughs> Oh, my fucking word. I, I didn't know that sex could be good. I didn't know that it could be fun. I didn't know that it could be romantic. And I didn't know that it could just be playful. 
And so I connected with this guy, and the next six months of my life is a montage of having sex with, let's call him Paul, at his apartment on the Upper West Side in a doorman building with a terrace facing New Jersey. So anyway, so... Um, um, <laughs> So I got together with this guy as often as I possibly could. I was freelancing, he was freelancing, so our days were free. And I would send him an email, and he'd say things like, well, uh, we, we can't have sex, but if you want to come over and suck my dick, you can do that. And I was like, right on. I would jump in a cab and go over to the Upper West Side. I suddenly stepped off of the sex short bus and onto, you know, in line for the AP Accelerated Sex Class. I learned things... Well, I didn't know much of anything, so I learned a lot of stuff. Well, eventually, after we just got done with the plain sex, we started with the kink. One day, he uh, sends me an email, and he said, um, I want you to pick up a butt plug. And um, I said, a what? And he said, a... <laughs> and he said, a butt plug. So I went into babe land, and I thought I was hot shit because I was going to get a butt plug. I got two butt plugs. And... Uh, and so we, uh, you know, we did some stuff in the back alley, back downstairs, you know, if you take my meaning. Um, and uh, that was all brand new to me. And um, one day we're having sex and he pulls out a rope. And what did I know from bondage? Filthy, filthy bondage. Uh, and he tied me up. At first I thought it was kind of silly, but then it was kind of hot. And then another date we had... Um, he asked me if I'd ever been flogged. And no, of course I had never been flogged. And at first it was kind of silly, but then it was kind of hot. Um, so this was going quite well. About four months into our relationship, he tells me about a kinky sex convention taking place in Washington, D.C. At this kinky sex convention, people would take classes during the day in, in subjects such as erotic shaving or cock and ball torture, or um, various types of bondage, or how to throw an orgy at your house. And um, so he invited me along. He thought I might have fun. So I thought, I'm with my sex spirit guide. How bad can it be? So uh, I sign up for this kinky sex convention, and um, I pay my, hos my hospital fee. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I pay a couple hundred bucks in registration. I pay a couple hundred bucks for the hotel. I'm, you know, getting ready to go to this kinky sex convention, thinking that, you know, I'm kind of hot shit now. And he has to cancel at the last minute. I was kind of terrified, but since I'd invested like $600, I decided to go to this thing by myself. So, um... I arrive in Washington, D.C., and I'm going through the course listings and trying to figure out what, what classes should I take. So um, I decided to go with sort of my natural inclination and the things that I like to do. So I did sign up for a wax play class because I'm kind of crafty. And um, <laughs> I, I signed up for two bondage courses, count them two, because um, I'm a backpacker. And I like knots, and I knit and crochet, so, you know, I like to do with the thing. So I go to this first class, 9 o'clock in the morning. I've got my notebook and my pen and my khaki shorts. And I go into this classroom and sit down, and the instructor walks in, and it's this perfectly lovely British man named Paul. And, and he starts talking about wax play, and wax play is when you drip hot wax on your lover's body, and it can be very intimate and really hot. And he tells us about the different kinds of waxes there are. And don't buy that when it's too expensive and it burns too hot. Get the cheap ones. And um, get a crock pot because you can melt the wax in the crock pot. And you need a tarp because it's kind of messy. And then he introduces his lovely assistant. And his lovely assistant is a beautiful woman in her 20s. And she walks out wearing a white robe. She disrobes very dramatically. And she's totally naked. My first thought was, is she allowed to be naked in the hotel? And, and then she hopped up onto this table. Paul starts slathering her with baby oil. And it's like watching a live sex show. And the baby oil keeps the wax from sticking. And then he has a candle and he starts dripping wax all over her body. And I'm suddenly, to be say I was turned on it is sort of off the point. There was something about this situation that was very fascinating to me. Um, it was 
intimate in a way. It's like they were partners, and, and they were making eye contact, and she was giggling, and he was teasing her with the wax, and I wanted some of that. I'm not quite sure what some of that was, but I just, I like that. And, and so I, I gather up my things, and I go to the, the next bondage class. It's called Shibari. It's sort of artful Japanese bondage, and same thing. Where there's an instructor at the front of the, the classroom, and, and he calls in a beautiful uh, model. Uh, in, par- in the kinky parlance, it's called a demo bottom the person upon whom a skill is being demonstrated. In this particular class, there was a man and a woman, and they were both naked, and the instructor just starts touching them and tying them up with these really artful-looking bondage techniques. And suddenly I realized what I wanted, and I wanted to be a demo bottom. And in this moment, my head was spinning, and and I I went from someone who had barely ever had sex to being someone who had a really specific fetish, and I wanted to be a demo bottom. I wanted to be the naked person in the front of the room, in a class, having something demonstrated on me. (laughs) So, uh, oddly enough, um, over the next couple of years, in fact, I didn't have much luck in being somebody's demo bottom. It wasn't until the summer before last that I got a chance to fulfill my hot shit, I know everything about sex, desire to be a demo bottom. The guy I had been dating was also a sex educator. He was going to be teaching a class in my neighborhood in Astoria, and the class is called G-Spot, P-Spot, Thrills and Spills. If there are children in the building, they might want to step outside for the next portion of our talk. Um, So G-spot portion was, you know, when a woman... Think how far I've come in the last 10 minutes in my life. So um, G-spot is when a woman has a G-spot orgasm, sometimes a great rush of fluid leaves her body. So he was going to be demonstrating that. And he was also going to be demonstrating on a male demo bottom that when you stimulate his prostate, he can have a pretty intense orgasm. So without putting too fine a point on it, I was qualified to be a demo bottom for him for this class. And, um, yeah, I know, right? Uh, (laughs) um, So the day comes, and it's time for me to be the demo bottom. This is the day I've been waiting for. It is hot and sticky. It's one of those gross days in New York City. It's like 102 degrees with 99% humidity. We walk into this classroom and the door opens and it's sort of like being, they were like, the place was packed. It was tiny. It was packed with people. And the woman running the place was irritated that we were late. So um, we wanted to get started. So I start looking around for the you know, secret room where I get undressed and put on a cute robe. And there was no secret room or cute white robe. So I had to sort of peel off my clothes in that, on that hot, sticky day and get out of my clothes. And it was just sort of, uh, it wasn't all that. So I, and then the next embarrassing thing is I'm short and the table's just a little too, ta- too high. So now I'm totally naked and I'm me, you know, you know, I'm me. And I've got to sort of hop up onto the table in front of all of these people. And you know, so everything kind of bounces a little bit. And so I lay down on the table and I splay my legs. And that's fine because that's what I was there for. But um, my friend pulls on a, a latex glove. Flap! And it, it's like, it, it's not really set the mood, you know? So uh, this is not turning out to be the romantic, intimate experience I had anticipated. And so he puts his hand inside of me after he loops his hand up, and he starts doing the thing that you do to somebody to give them a G-spot orgasm, and he's giving his lecture about the G-spot orgasm comes from the word Grafenberg, Dr. Grafenberg, you know, discovered it, and blah, 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 and you don't always have a G-spot orgasm, but when you do, it can, you know, have a lot of fluid, and blah, 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 and really not romantic. There's no eye contact. There's no sort of playful wax play, sort of, you know, giggling, and I'm realizing that I am so out of my depth, <laughs> and I'm so not the sex badass I thought I was. I'm pretty much just clenching up, and as all of you women know, that the best way to have an intense orgasm is to clench up and concentrate. So um, <laughs> he's doing his thing, and I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm feeling like 
and, and this is my special brand of neuroses. These people came for a show, damn it, I'm going to give them a show. <laughs> and feeling like, I can do this, I can do it. And it's, it's getting a little dry, and it's a little more lube on, and, and finally it's like, this, this is not going to happen. So uh, my friend was very gracious and just, you know, says, look, you know, we're in front of a group of people. You don't always have an orgasm when you want to. Um, you know, we, we learned something here as well. But I sort of, like, I got off the table and grabbed my clothes and ran to the back of the room, and I... I felt like the kid in right field who missed the ball, you know? It's like, and I wanted to make excuses. I can do this. I really can do this. It was really humid, and I didn't get enough to drink. Blah, blah, blah. So I spoke off to the back of the room. And, um, but luckily, my friend has brought another demo bottom, another adorable 20-something girl who's not wearing shorts and a T-shirt. She's wearing this really pretty dress that she just flips off, and she hops up onto the table facing the audience with her knees up on the thing, and... Uh, she just goes, and she sprays the whole audience. I mean, it was like Watts in the 60s. And uh, I was, well, first of all, I was thinking, I thank God I'm not in the front row. <laughs> Second of all, I was, I was just, I was shocked. And before I knew it, she said, I think there's a little more. And she sprays the room again. <laughs> I can't, I can't win, you know? So, you know, I felt so shown up. I felt like the bad comic who opens for the rock band, you know? I just wanted to get out of there. And uh, it was as anticlimactic as it sounds. You know, people were applauding. You know, we were leaving, as we were leaving the class, people were patting me on the back, saying, no, it was good, you did really well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't fulfill my... my I fulfilled my fantasy of sex, um, but not my demo bottoming fantasy. So, you know, it's back on the short bus for me in that regard. Um, but, hey, listen, I haven't given up on my quest. So if anybody out there is looking for a demo bottom, <laughs> keep me in mind. Just maybe something that doesn't require waterworks. Thank you. <laughs> For this week, folks, that is L. King behind me now. And uh, listen, we have a lot of classes that are starting soon at thestorystudio.org. There are two classes that start within a week that you can save 25% on by entering the special promo code Workshop Discount. All one word, Workshop Discount. Just go to thestorystudio.org and find out about all that we're offering here in New York, in Los Angeles, and of course online over Skype. And we have a ton of incredible live shows coming up, including this special series that we're doing in Los Angeles to benefit the Story Studio. There will be no stories in these shows, but there will be improv by Big Black Car that features Ellie Kemper from The Office and Bridesmaids, Matt Oberg from Ugly Americans, Kristen Schaal from The Daily Show and Flight of the Concords, also Andy Dick. Go to risk-show.com tour to get tickets. 
It's the next several Tuesdays uh, at Studio Stage at 520 Northwestern Avenue. Also, Dallas! Dallas, Texas. We will be coming to you for the very first time ever at the Dallas Comedy House. That's February 7th for the Dallas show. Come out and see us. Then on February 27th, we're back with our normal shows at the Pit in New York and at Nerd Melt in Los Angeles. And Reno and San Diego. We need pitches from you guys. If you live in Reno, Nevada or San Diego, California, send us your story pitches and you could be on the Risk show that we do in your city. San Diego will be on March 8th and Reno is supposed to be March 29. We're not completely locked in on that yet, but Reno and San Diego, send us your pitches. Send them straight to me at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, Today's the day. Take a risk. Better satisfy me. Tommy player, I'll make you see them bitches ain't got shit on me. So look it now, lick it good. Suck it for the just like you should. Right now, lick it good. Suck this for the just like you should. My neck, my body, lick my pussy and my cock. My neck, my body, lick my pussy. So I entered an orgy fairly recently, and I walked into this back room area where there was a hot tub, and it was like, is that Laurie Baird? <laughs> so we were the two people there who were talking about storytelling for the first hour, until one of the hosts asked us if we were ever going to remove our clothes. What Lori doesn't know is that on Valentine's weekend, I'm teaching a class called Everything You Can Do to an Ass Other Than Fuck It. Uh, and I have yet to find a demo bottom. <laughs> it's a lot of work for the demo bottom, that one. Uh, 